You want to have your Bibles open? John 16 is where we're going to be, the whole, the whole chapter, the whole thing. And uh, to be honest, it's tough. I, I think the material that we're dealing with is it's pretty hard to expound on in this way. What I mean by that is Jesus is spending time with his disciples and talking to them and instructing them on the night he's going to get arrested before he's crucified. And this message that he's been giving his disciples has been going on for a while. We've been dealing with it for weeks. It's in theological circles, it's called the upper room discourse. It's the discourse Jesus gives. It's the sermon or the message Jesus gives his, his disciples on that final night at the Last Supper. It starts with them at the Last Supper in chapter 13 of John. And it covers four chapters, 13, 14, 15, and 16. And it starts out at the Last Supper, and Jesus is explaining to them the idea of service. And he, he washes the feet of his disciples, and he points out to them that if Jesus, the, their rabbi, who also happens to be God made flesh, is willing to serve, then as followers of his, obviously, we're not above him, and he expects the same from us. In that same time frame, he tells his disciples that one of them is going to betray him. And they wonder who that is. And in the same time frame, he tells Peter that Peter's going to deny him three times that night. And they've got all of this confusion. Jesus is predicting his death. He's saying he's going away. He's telling them someone's going to betray them. Peter's going to deny him. They're going to be scattered and run away. And they're confused. They don't know what's going on. And he's trying to bring light, the light that they need to know to get to the next step. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. They need to have information that they are dealing with to get there so that they can be strong enough to be with Jesus again after the resurrection. And he's giving them all of this information. He's telling them, not to be afraid that he's leaving and that he's going away. In fact, he even tells them in John chapter 14 that him going away is not a bad thing. He's going to prepare a place for them. There are many mansions in his father's house, and if it weren't so, he wouldn't have told them. He goes to prepare a place for them because he's going to bring them with him at some point. He's going to bring the church to himself at some point. And so he's trying to tell them this isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a message of encouragement, but also a warning of what's to come and to be strong. Because after that message of encouragement, he tells them about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit is going to help them through their problem and their grieving and the process, and also to expand the church and what the, the Holy Spirit's going to do for them. But then he warns them and he says, don't, don't get too encouraged because here's the other thing. The world hates me. And because the world hates me, it's, it's going to hate you. And just like being Jesus' followers means we're not above him, and if he was willing to serve, we should be people of service. We should be willing to serve others if Jesus was willing to serve others. 
we shouldn't expect to be exempt from persecution. If God made flesh was persecuted, we shouldn't expect better treatment than God. And so if the world hates him, it's going to hate us also. And that's where we ended last, last week. But now we jump into the last chapter, John 16, the, the last words of this message that he's been giving his disciples. He's summing it all up before he goes to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he gets arrested, before his crucifixion. So these are the words that Jesus needed his disciples to hear before his arrest, before his crucifixion. These are the things he chooses to say. And so it's, it's heavy to think about that and then to stand up here in a t-shirt and tell you all about it as if I'm somehow qualified to step into those shoes and explain what Jesus has in his heart. I'm not. I'm just a guy. So I just pray that the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers me because the Holy Spirit is fully qualified to explain this chapter. And it starts out like this. He says, these things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. And so as this closing chapter of this speech and message to his disciples comes, he explains to them why he's telling them what he's telling them so that they won't stumble. God likes to prepare us for what's coming so that we're aware of what's coming. And he tells us, or he tells his disciples, I'm telling you what's coming so that you won't stumble, so that when you experience it, things will make some sense to you. And he says in verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. That's a pretty hard thing to hear for the disciples. Now, the disciples are fully aware. They've already come to faith in Jesus and who he is. Peter has already made a full-out statement that Jesus is the Son of God, and they know that he's the Messiah. But their expectation of the Messiah is not lining up with what Jesus is doing. They're expecting Jesus to be a conqueror and to take over. And now he's telling them that he's going away and that he's going to die. And these things don't compute in their heads. And now he's even telling them that they're going to be persecuted because they follow him. They're going to be kicked out of the synagogues, the pe their cultural center. They're going to be ostracized from culture and society because of their faith in Jesus. Now, that's pretty relevant. Those who stand up for truth in this culture tend to be on the outskirts of it and kicked out. It's a problem. And then he says, outside of just being ostracized culturally, there's also going to be a time where Whoever kills you thinks they're doing God's service. This is no truer than with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul started out hunting Christians down, holding people's coats and chanting them on while people were throwing rocks at Stephen in Acts, in the book of Acts. He sought to get papers to approve putting all of the Christians in jail or to death because he sought to end this movement 
That is until he saw the resurrected Christ, and then he himself became a victim of persecution. But it's true, what happened in those days after the resurrection and in the early church, when Caesar Nero was on the throne, some things got pretty dark. Uh, I'm going to share with you some of it, because why not? And uh, if, you know, if you have a weak stomach, plug your ears, because these are some of the things that happened. Two Christians, because they believed in Christ, Nero was kind of a crazy guy. And it turns out, just for fun, he set the entire city of Rome on fire. And then, to get away from the political ramifications of that, he just blamed it on Christians. And then he persecuted Christians for doing the thing he did. And these are some of the ways he would persecute Christians. Um, some of them he would impale while they were alive and stick them on a stake while they were alive and pour pitch or tar or wax over them and then light them on fire so that they would light the chariot races or his garden. They would burn alive. Uh, so one of the other things, one of the other practices that happened is that they would uh, flay people alive, like peel skin off. Another one is they would sew them up inside of dead animal carcasses and put animal skins around them as a de dead animal, and they would send wild animals, like wild dogs or lions, after them. So they would think they're eating the dead animal carcass that's moving because there's a person sewed up inside of it. These are the types of things that happened. Now, I only bring this up in its gruesome nature because these are the things that the people were dealing with. And what they believed to go through this was that Jesus was resurrected. And many of them saw the resurrected Jesus. If they were lying, I don't know about you, but I'm not getting sewn up inside of a dead animal to get eaten by a wild animal or something that's not true. But these guys were willing to do it because of what the truth meant to them. Because the world is temporary, but the eternal life that Jesus offers is better. But sometimes the people who were persecuting them actually thought they were doing God's service. In verse 3, in these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And basically he's saying, things might not make sense, you might be confused, but there will be a point where it all clicks and it makes sense and you'll remember what I told you and then it will help you in your belief. Uh, I don't know what your story is. Uh, my story is a little different. It's a little, little unique. I grew up outside of the church. I didn't hear scripture. I didn't know the stories. The first time scripture was brought to me, I was just about to turn 16 years old. I was at a youth group because a friend had invited me. And we watched this video, and this guy was preaching on Romans 8.28, and I'll never forget the verse. It said, And we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. I heard that. I memorized it instantly. I don't know anything else the guy said. But for the first moment in my life, I heard something that was clearly discernibly true. And truth hit me like a ton of bricks in a world where everyone was putting on a facade. Everyone was trying to look better than they were, or to pretend to be something that they weren't, or they were chasing money that doesn't really provide fulfillment, or they were trying to look better than their brother. All my extended family had competition with each other, trying to be the guy who made my grandfather the most proud. 
know, all this kind of stuff that just wasn't real, but this was real, and truth hit me like a ton of bricks, and I knew I wanted to be a part of it. And I knew when I heard it, when I heard it, I thought, gosh, I want to know what that means. I want to know what it means to be called according to God's purpose. I want to know God, and I want to know his purpose. I want to know what it's like to be called to it. I want to know what it means to love God and to be loved by him. And so I got a Bible, and I started reading it, and I'm pouring into it, and all of, all of the things I had been curious about or that were breaking me up inside because the world didn't make sense became clear because I saw the truth in black and white. And for them, they heard the truth directly from Jesus' lips. And there's a moment in time where the fog goes away and things become clear. I think of it this way. It's like waking up in the, I don't know, who, who here is a morning person? Anybody here a morning person? You're all crazy. I am not. First of all, I wear glasses, so I'm immediately blind the second I wake up. And even putting my glasses on does not help. There's a, at least an hour and a half of time frame where the world is just foggy to me. Nothing makes sense. I don't know why kids are screaming. I don't know why Julia is mad at me, because I haven't figured it out yet. But there's a moment in time where the day starts to make sense, and I realize my responsibilities. And it's not just putting one foot in front of the other, and things become clear. And the day makes sense, and my calendar makes sense, and the schedule makes sense because I get out of the fog. It's usually after I brush my teeth. I don't know why. It's just the mint helps me wake up. But that is the moment where the world becomes clear to me. And that's what, that's what he's saying. There will be a point in time where things become clear. And he says, but, but, and these things I do not say at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Now, it's interesting. Jesus is telling, has been telling them that he's going away. They've been so distraught about the fact that he's leaving, they haven't even asked him where he's going. He says, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So after explaining that, things are going to make sense eventually. He explains to them, he's going away. And it's a good thing that he's going away. I don't know about you. But this is a hard pill to swallow. And I imagine it's even harder for the disciples to say it's a good thing that Jesus won't be next to them. I know there are times in my life I could think of when I'm trying to share the truth with people, it would be really nice if Jesus appeared right next to me. Because it would make it a whole lot easier for me to tell them what I'm trying to tell them. See, he's real. <laughs> he's right there. And they were with him for three and a half years every day, learning from him experiencing the love and the beauty and the wisdom and knowledge of the Messiah as he teaches. And he's saying, I'm going away, and that's a good thing. Their jaws must have hit the floor and going, wait, wait, if we have a vote, I think you might be wrong about this one. I know you're God, but if it's possible to be wrong about one thing, you leaving us doesn't seem like the right thing. But then he says, because the helper will come, because the Holy Spirit will empower you to do what you can't do now. You need the Holy Spirit to do it. Now, I do think about that. 
What would it actually be like if we really understood that? Yeah, it would be really nice if Jesus appeared next to me when I'm trying to share who he is with other people. But what if I just lived with the understanding that if I have the power of the Holy Spirit in me because I've, I've come to Christ, that I can actually live with the knowledge that God has given me the power to be used by him, and I can just let him do what he needs to do. If I could live in the power of the Spirit, like the disciples did, then I would be a lot more convincing than trying to do it on my own. He's saying, if I go away, the Helper will come, and I'll send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, and of righteousness, and of judgment. And now he's saying two things are going to happen, or three things are going to happen when the Spirit comes. This is what he's going to do through them, because the Spirit will dwell in the church. Through the church, through the Spirit, and the power of the Spirit, through the church, through the disciples, he, the Holy Spirit, will convict the world of sin. Why is that important? Well, we'll find out soon. And of righteousness, what does that mean? And of judgment. Well, Jesus explains. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Here's the deal. If you are unaware of the fact that you need a Savior, why would you ask for one? If you feel no pressure, if you have no acknowledgement of your imperfections and where that will ultimately lead you, why would you even be worried about who Jesus is and what he can do for you? Through the church, he will convict the world of sin because when people are aware of their sin and their separation from God, they may have now a desire to be close to him through Jesus, through believing in Jesus. Verse 10, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. What does this mean? He's saying, what the world will know because of Jesus' story is the type of righteousness that can stand before the Father. The only one who can stand before the, the Father in righteousness is Jesus, because he's the only one who lived a sinless life. That's why Paul writes in his letters that we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We cannot stand before the Father on our own because our sin separates us from him. The only type of righteousness that can stand before the Father is the righteousness of Christ. So the only way to stand before him is through Christ's righteousness, through his sacrifice. And so if the world is aware of sin, it can then recognize it needs a savior and believe in Jesus. If they believe in Jesus, they can be clothed in his righteousness and they can stand before the Father. And of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now here's a big problem. And this is what I see in a lot of those who have doubts. Jesus came and he conquered sin and death. So if he conquered sin and death on the cross, why is there still so much evil? Why does the enemy still have such a foothold on the battleground of earth? Well, Jesus takes care of that and his judgment at the second coming. If you want to know the answer to that, read Revelation. But he did conquer sin and death, and he did judge the ruler of this world. What you're witnessing is the actions of a wounded animal. Because of the cross, sin is conquered. 
death is conquered. And so now Satan's wounded, the enemy is wounded, and all he can do is react with as much ferocity as he can with whatever time he's got left. And he's crafty. Now it's interesting, this little section of verses where the Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, and of what's coming. And on the opposite side of that is almost what the world looks like right now. Well, Jesus is preparing his church, the leaders of his church, to set up the church and do the work of the church. This is the work of the church. The world needs to know that sin is real and it separates people from God. The only answer to that is the Savior, and the Savior is Jesus. With Jesus, you get clothed in his righteousness and you can be saved from the judgment that's coming. But Paul tells us a little bit about what the world is going to look like. And this is what Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-8. through 8. He says, But know that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. That's all of us, right? Disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. For this is the sort who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded, with, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts always learning and never able to come to knowledge of the truth. Now, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith. It sounds like the last days. This is the dichotomy that we live in. This is the world and what is happening and being foist upon young people right now. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin in absolute moral truth. There is good, there is bad, there is right, there is wrong. And if that's true, which it is, and the Creator has divinely appointed what the moral authority is and how we treat one another and how we live our lives, then there is good, bad, right, and wrong. But the world right now is trying to tell everyone that truth is relative, and it is only how you see it. Your perspective is truth. Whatever you see the world as, however you see the world, that is true. Whatever's true for you is true for you. There's no absolute truth. The problem with that moral stance is that well, if whatever's true for you is true for you, whatever you see as good as a, is a moral good, then no one person is more moral than another. And Corey Ten Boom, Mother Teresa, Stalin, and Hitler are all on the same moral playground level playing field because whatever they saw as truth was truth. Nothing was better, nothing was worse. The truth is we all know that there is objective moral truth. And we know on that list which of those were not good. But that's what the world is selling right now. We live in a world right now where protecting the innocence of children 
is controversial. It sounds like the last days. But it's the church's job to let the Holy Spirit use them to show the world truth so that they can be convicted of sin and righteousness and of judgment. So I still have many things to say to you, but cannot hear them now. You cannot hear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you the things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said, he will take of mine and declare it to you. So now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, what you get is a direct connection to God. What Jesus has to offer you comes directly to you through the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, the Father will grant it to you through the power of the Holy Spirit, because Father and I are one. What's mine is his, what's his is mine, what's mine is yours now, through the power of the Holy Spirit. A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me, because I go to the Father. So, in a little bit, I'm going to be gone, but then I'll be back, and then I'm going to the Father. He's telling them his future, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, what is it that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me, and because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says a little while, and we do not know what he's saying? Well, I just read it. It does sound confusing. In a little while, I won't be here, but then I'll be here, and then I'm going to the Father, and it's a good thing. They don't understand, and they're confused. Remember, Jesus said, I'm telling you this so that you will not stumble in the future. And he told them that there will be a time when it will make sense and when it will become clear. It's okay that they don't understand now. What I mean to explain by that is sometimes the circumstances of life or what we think God is asking us to do, doesn't always seem to make sense. Give it time and have faith. The disciples did that, gave it time, they had faith. The Holy Spirit came and things made sense. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while and you will not see me, and a little while and you will see me. Most assuredly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. He's talking about his death. He said, a woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come, but as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And so what he's saying is, after my death, you're going to be upset. You're going to be bummed out. But I'm coming back, and your sorrow will turn to joy. And the metaphor that he uses is a woman in childbirth. Well, if you don't know, my daughter is nearly two years old. <clears throat> and she'll be two in August, and Juliet is now pregnant again, and our second will be born in September. So this is the conversation that we had. 
when I found out we were having a second, a second child. <clears throat> She's excited. She can't wait to tell me that we're having another child. And I'm stunned. I mean, my jaw hit the floor. She tells me that she's pregnant. And I'm like, no, you're not. You're, you're joking, right? She's like, no. Isn't this great? And in my head, I'm thinking, do you remember the process? Do you remember what happened last time? Now, when Kara was born, Juliet was in labor for over 24 hours. It was nearly 30 hours by the time we finally uh, were called to do a C-section. Now, here's the thing. Juliet has epilepsy. And so she can have seizures. And one of the ways she can have seizures, or what her neurologist had said, is that every time she's had a seizure, her blood pressure was low. And they weren't sure if that was a cause or effect, meaning... They weren't sure if her blood pressure dropped and that caused a seizure or if she had a seizure and that caused a low blood pressure. Meaning, in epidural, we were not supposed to do that at all. We were supposed to avoid that at all costs because an epidural will drop your blood pressure. And the last thing you want during a labor is a seizure. And so we kept holding off and holding off and holding off as long as we could. And I'm sitting in the hospital room. Now, I haven't slept for two days. My wife is screaming in, in pain every couple of minutes. She can't find a comfortable spot. We're both sweaty and gross and tired and we haven't slept. And I feel like I'm about to pass out, but I'm trying to be there for her. And I'm watching the woman I love with all my heart and soul, crying and writhing in pain. And there's nothing I can do about it as I hold her hand, wishing I could take that pain away. And I watch this go on for 30 hours. I'm not prepared to do that again. And her response was, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> Jesus was right. They no longer remember the anguish for the joy that a human being has come into the world. And what better joy than the resurrection of Jesus? That means death is defeated and eternal life is possible because of the resurrection of Jesus. And so all of the sorrow and pain that we feel and the things that we go through and the circumstances that we're dealing with, they're hard. I'm not going to deny it. I'm not going to deny the mountains and the valleys that we face. They're huge, and sometimes they're giant obstacles that feel insurmountable. But in the grand scheme of things, the resurrection beats it. Because life is very temporary on earth. Eternity is not. And the joy that we can have from that far outweighs whatever's in front of us. And that's Jesus' point. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. In your joy no one will take from you. And in that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And Jesus is pointing out, because of what I'm doing, 
because of what is about to happen, because of the arrest, the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, you now have direct access to the Father. You've never had that. In world history, no one ever had that. There were a boatload of temple rituals and sacrifices people utilized to send the prayers up to heaven and to become clean enough before God to have some sort of communion with him. But Jesus is saying, now, because of what I'm going to do, you can ask for something in my name and you have direct access to God. The separation is no more because of what I'm going to do. And these things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. Because of your belief, because of your faith, you have direct access to him, and the Father loves you directly. Verse 28. This is a potent verse. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. So Jesus, in all of his wisdom and eloquence, sums up everything that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John sought out to tell you. From eternity in heaven, as a member of the triune God, Jesus comes and becomes flesh and comes into the world. And now he's leaving the world. He'll come back, and then he goes to the Father. That's the whole gospel message. But then he's coming back, and that's when judgment comes. Verse 29, his disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. And so now they make a statement of, oh, finally, you said something that we understand. We believe you. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Like, finally, after three and a half years? What have you been doing for three and a half years if you didn't believe? Now you believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, and has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And so his response is, well, it's great that you believe, but later tonight, you're going to run away. You're bold now because you understand what I've said, but later tonight, I already know that you're all going to run away. You're going to run away scared, and you're going to scatter from me, and you're going to leave me alone to hang on the cross. But it's okay, because I'm doing it for you, and I'm not alone, because I have the Father. I don't need you. I've called you. And then he gives them this. He says, he wants you to have peace. He's spoken these things to you so that you can have peace in a troubled world. And he says this, in the world, you will, not you might, not it could happen, you will have trouble. You will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So that wounded animal that's attacking and trying to bring the world down to its knees and to get it separated from God, Jesus has overcome him. Jesus has chosen 
you. And he's called you, and the Holy Spirit is calling. And he's telling the world, those of you, you know. You know you're not perfect. You know that there's right and wrong. Stop lying to yourself. You know there's right and wrong, and you always have not been on the side of right. How on earth do you expect to get into a perfect heaven if you yourself are not perfect? You'll ruin it for everybody else. How do you get there? The only way is through the Savior who can clothe you in his righteousness, and the only one who lived sinless is Jesus. And so the question is, has the Holy Spirit tugged at you? Have you felt that tug? Have you noticed the sin in your life that you want to repent from and turn from and believe in Jesus and be clothed in his righteousness and be saved from judgment? If you have, have faith in him and know that even though trouble's coming, he has overcome the world. And whatever troubles you have in this world can pale in comparison to the resurrection and what it means, eternal life with God. So what do we learn from all of this? What Jesus is telling his disciples? There's a mission. And that mission, in order to complete it, to spread the gospel and to bring the world into knowledge of their sin so that can, they can be saved from it, is the work of the Holy Spirit. That's really good news because it means it's not our work. Now, we have to participate in it, but it doesn't mean that you have to be the one to convince. You're not responsible for the conviction of the person you're sharing the gospel with. You're not the person responsible for their conversion. The Holy Spirit's the one responsible for that. All you have to do is to participate in the process and let God do what he needs to do. Ask him for wisdom, ask him for opportunity, and take it when you get it. And realize when there's pushback from the world, it's okay because Jesus has overcome the world. Now, I watched an interview the other night. And there's a really powerful story from that interview I want to share. So if you haven't heard of this, The Sound of Freedom is the number one movie in America right now. It's based on a true story of a real man named Tim Ballard. And his job was to save Americans from foreign entities that were captured. And while he was on a mission, he found a lot of children, not just American children. And he was calling the Department of Homeland Security, and he was calling the operatives and his bosses, asking if he could save the other children as well. But because of bureaucratic red tape, and government movements, he was not allowed to save the other children, only the Americans. And he called his wife. There's no way that he was allowed to do both because of bureaucratic red tape. And he called his wife and he said, what should I do? Because I'm here to do my job, but I, I'm looking at these kids. If I stay here, I can save them. But if I save them, I have to quit my job. Now, we've got kids of our own. How am I supposed to do that knowing I'm supposed to protect my family as well? We don't have a lot of money. And she said to him, stay. Save the kids. I can't even believe we're having this conversation. And he pushed back on her and he said, no, I understand. It's my idea. I want to save the kids, but I want to make sure it's okay 
because I have to quit my job if we do so. And her response to him was, how dare you? You do what you have to do to save those kids. Do not jeopardize my salvation over your cowardice. And he said that hit him like a ton of bricks. He hung up the phone. He quit his job, stayed there, finished the mission, saved hundreds of kids from a sex trafficking ring, and got them safely out and into homes. And then started a foundation doing the same thing for years and is still doing the same thing. Now, I don't think that that's on my plate to be able to do, but I, I do know that what God calls me to, I want to do with that kind of boldness. And now he faced a real problem. He has a family, he has a house, he has kids, he wants them to have, have a life. And he had a good paying job, but he quit it to do the right thing. And then God took care of him. It doesn't mean that he makes more than he could have or, or that any decision you make is going to bless you financially or anything like that. But what it does mean is seek first the kingdom of God and the rest will be given unto you. If you're doing what God has asked you to do, God will take care of you. Jesus said, look at the sparrows. Do I not feed them and clothe them? How much more does God love you? You expect him to not give you more. So do seek first the kingdom of heaven and the rest will be given unto you. So that's the mission. Let the Holy Spirit do it. And don't be afraid to be bold, because when we seek the kingdom first, God will take care of you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for these words. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for taking the time with your disciples to share with them the truth they needed to know and for handing that down for generations so that we can know your words, who you are, how much you love us, and how you'll be there for us in our time of need when we follow you and do the work you have called us to do. Help us as a church do what you require of us. Help us to spread the gospel, to give hope to those who need it, and to make them aware that they need a Savior and the Savior is real, and he is loving, and introduce them to you so that they can be clothed with your righteousness and be saved from the judgment. God, we pray that we have the ability, the creativity, the motivation, and the humility to get out of the way to let the Holy Spirit do the work for us. In Jesus' name, amen.